Welcome to the In On Health podcast. This is your host, Kapama Yopala, and I go by KP. I'm the co-founder and CEO of In On Health. In today's episode, we finalize part two of the conversation with Dr. Ahmad Garrett-Price about my personal prostate cancer journey. Dr. Garrett-Price is a board-certified family medicine physician leader with extensive experience in large integrated health systems and over 12 years of practice experience in primary care. This is one of the reasons I really wanted to bring him on because a lot of our issues with cancer start with screening. He comes from a family of clinicians and healthcare workers and has a tremendous story. Dr. Garrett Price has served as a voting board and committee member on several enterprise-wide clinical leadership initiatives, including developing and piloting some of the first system-wide virtual health offerings in Texas. He is passionate about constructive innovation and believes that a proactive and preventative approach is more sustainable to whole health and well-being. I hope you enjoy this conversation and share it with your loved ones to support cancer screening in our country. So moving on, we really want to spend time on screening because Mm -hmm. this is the the tip of the sword in this issue, right? So it's like, really, we got to get screening right to get to have more options Mm -hmm. to mediate negative outcomes, right? So I really want us to dig into that. Let's move into diagnosis. So I get this diagnosis. I'm told I have moderately aggressive prostate cancer. I'm now like one in a bit of shock. Mm -hmm. Lots of different types of feelings and I'm going through about it. A dose of fear, the word early made me feel a lot better and Mm -hmm. having the public health knowledge that, okay, I could get to an outcome, but really like, what are the implications of this outcome? There are a lot of open questions that were yeah, just created uncertainty and angst. And I'm very fortunate to have a great wife and great family mm-hmm. and support system. My kids are very supportive. Everybody's very supportive. But, you know, we also wanted to keep things fairly tight because there's a lot of things going on in life. I'm in the middle of an investment round. Yeah. I've got all kinds of things going on. I'm like, yeah, these investors need to know I got cancer right now. Like, come on. You know, so so we're trying to, like, juggle just on the one hand doing all the things that I do and on the other hand, like navigating what this means, like what this means, like is this going to be an ongoing thing? What does mm-hmm. this mean for me personally, for my family? How much risk is there? Those those fears, did this cancer possibly spread beyond the prostate? Right. Like, you know, um, so I was having a lot of those, that type of angst when we started talking. Tell me about a little bit more, just like as you counsel patients when they get this diagnosis, mm-hmm. maybe a few things that you share with them before we go into the treatment options. Right. So one of the things that I share, you know, when you receive a diagnosis like this, I'm big on educating. So I really start to try to lay out the options that are available you, to you, much like what we talked about initially when, when you have the diagnosis. I remember we had a great conversation. So I really try to equip my patients with knowledge at this point and get them to the next point of care in an expedited manner. So at that point, we start talking about, you know, grading and staging, much like you hit on with the Gleason score. We start talking about treatment options at that point and really what's right for you at the stage of life that you're in, right? Is Mm -hmm. it, is it hormone therapy, right? Is it 
you know, prostatectomy, i.e. removal of the prostate, right? But first, we have to start to understand where it is and where it isn't. That's the next thing with any diagnosis in, in cancer, which for you, kind of curious to know, we had that conversation. Once you were diagnosed, did you feel like you knew kind of what those next steps were? Were you guided to the next steps? Yeah, so once I got the diagnosis, and, and the way that happened is I was referred to a urologist. So mm -hmm. just for listeners to know, my medical doctor immediately referred me to a urologist. They did um, an outpatient procedure to biopsy the prostate. Mm -hmm. It's outpatient, it's quick, you know, it's uncomfortable, but it's quick. And they take biopsies, at least in my case, in 12 different places on the prostate, right? So that's how we like got to after screening, how we got to more definitive answers, just to share with people what happened there. So now, you know, I've, I've you know, I, I, I was told like basically a framework for, you know, how to think about this. And the issue was, you know, depending on how pervasive the cancer is, depending on how aggressive the cancer is, depending on all those things, there are different options. So one option I was told was we wait and see. So we watch mm -hmm. and we monitor, right? You know, another option would be radiation. Mm -hmm. You know, another option would be what was called a radical prostatectomy where you basically just remove the whole prostate. Um, so I was kind of given this like range of like, options and i was given a recommendation pretty early that in my situation this was very unusual mm -hmm. so they're like this is a rare case is what i was told if you look at the curve you know i'm a 42 year old healthy male and there were implications around the treatment options because i was so young right if, if it's someone right. that's 75 is getting this diagnosis is very different than someone who's 42 and I think that was at the heart of how we made the decision was a mix of like the aggressiveness of the cancer and my age along with the treatment options. So just before we go into that was like the framework I was yeah. given. Right. You and know? so that's important to point out in what you were asking me is that, you know, we know we have the diagnosis. Now we start to quote unquote grade it, right? And for the audience, the biopsy kind of helps us establish that. But then we also start to stage it, meaning that is it just in the prostate? Mm -hmm. Is it starting to spread, right? So kind of walk us through that process for you as, as well, because that's an important point in deciding, before you can decide on the treatment, you have to understand what you're up against to right. a certain degree. And so, and so, yeah, so they did, that was where I started to get a little bit more fear mm. when they because in one one part of my mind i'm highly logical I was like, okay it's in the prostate we just get rid of the prostate whatever we get rid of the issue but then when they started telling me well look kp we don't know because we only biopsy 12 places in the prostate and so that's incomplete information so this is mm. a probability driven decision the only way we really know is when we go in and we look right but the issue right. here is you're young and if this jumps out of the prostate into your system through the seminal vesicles mm -hmm. or through another vehicle and it becomes systemic, right. we have a whole nother set of issues. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I started to get a little bit scared. Like, I'm like, oh, wait, like, oh, you know, like, I was like, yeah, you just, you take pause. You're like, oh, this is, you know, in my mind, I'm, 
that's where the gravity of this started to set right. in for me. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of skating on it yeah. for a while, just skating on it. Like, oh, I'll be fine. Like, yeah, we found it early. I'll just get treatment. And then like I was skating. And then all of a sudden that hit me like a brick. Right? I was like, oh, wait, yeah. this could be systemic. Like just because the biopsy looked like this, we don't know. Like it could be on my system. We don't even know. And then I've got a whole bigger issue. And I think that was started to become where the gravity of this whole thing started setting in because there was lack of information at that point other than just the biopsy and the PSA. Right. And so I, so then I started to realize how much actually wasn't known mm-hmm. because to be honest with listeners, I had a lot going on. I got my family, my kids, an investment round. And in my mind, I was like, can I wait? And I know it may sound crazy to people, but you and I had these conversations. <laughs> I was like, yo, why don't I just like wait get my investment round done and all this other stuff and then come back to this. And people are like, yo, okay, like, come on now. Yeah. Let's not be rolling the dice or life. But I mean, but again, like I was kind of skating, the gravity of it wasn't setting in and I was trying to figure out how to juggle everything just for everybody. Like yeah. trying to juggle everything, my life, my investment round, mm-hmm. my businesses, like all this stuff. I was trying to juggle it, trying to find a way. And I would say until the gravity set in, I don't think I was prioritizing the right way. <laughs> right, right. And and I see that often as a physician. And if you can remember, what did I start doing? I started leaning a little. What, I started peppering you with some, well, I was like, some so, questions. Yeah, I was like, all right, you want to do this? I'm the third. And I think, again, another important point is that you have to understand the full breadth of what you're up against to kind of understand before you move on to the treatment option to kind of understand what you're up against. So sticking with that theme, were you offered or were there other things done to try to quote unquote complete the picture if you will right so i think in terms of completing the picture i think i was it was framed to me as risk risk mm-hmm. management so it's like we have these pieces of information your psa was elevated we did a prostate exam your prostate is not enlarged but nonetheless we did the biopsy and you've got moderately aggressive prostate cancer in your prostate. And the Gleason scores um, were such that they're like, mm, this isn't, I think what became clear to me is with my Gleason score and all I just tell listeners is just telling us how aggressive this is. Is it, yep. is it slow growing or fast growing? That's just to frame it like that. Um, we can put a resource in the notes about what the we'll Gleason so. score is. It's, it's that kind of complex actually, but, but um, and how you analyze it. But the long and short is, we realized that it was moderately aggressive. And so then it's like a risk analysis. Mm-hmm. So they're like, here's what we know. We know it's there. We know it's moderately aggressive. We know it's early stage, but more like stage two. Mm-hmm. And as a young male, you know, there's life in front of you here just based on your life expectancy. Exactly. And so we need to think about the big picture. Yep. If you were 70 and coming to me with this or 75, the risk analysis is completely different because there are a whole nother set of risk factors that Mm -hmm. might be associated with age and you're balancing the risk profile very differently. Exactly. And so this is where we started getting into like that risk profiling to make a decision. And I think the thing that got me over the line and made this very obvious that I had to prioritize my wellness for myself and family is that was the risk of it becoming systemic. Exactly. So they're like, we don't know if it's systemic. And every day that you wait with a moderately aggressive cancer, there's a risk that it's becoming systemic. Right. 
And once we get systemic, it gets serious on a whole nother level. And we just didn't know. Exactly. So then that led us to treat it with a completely different risk profile that heightened the risk factors for me to needing to do a more aggressive treatment plan. Exactly. And this is something that we do as physicians. I kind of do for my own personal patients uh, in the past is you you made some important points here that we, we should say for the audience is that everyone's treatment option can potentially be different based on life expectation, quality of life, and just kind of where they are in the arc of life, right? So what is offered to 70, 85-year-old male in a similar scenario may be different. And that's kind of where we usually start, right? Is, Mm -hmm. okay, now we understand what we're up against, which you hit on the Gleason score, right? And for you guys that don't know, just to quickly clarify that, you know, Ultra, the biopsies are usually on the prostate conducted via ultrasound. Ultrasound is probably not the most specific imaging study that we have, right? And so we do the ultrasound. We take 11 pieces of tissue from the prostate. Mm-hmm. We score those. And the scores that you know we're worried about are between three and five. Exactly. And so what we see is... Basically, we add up the two uh, most frequent scores, right? So if we've got 12 samples and for, say, 10 or threes and we see another. Yeah, they did 12 samples for me in my case. Exactly. So what we really want to see is three plus three, right? Mm -hmm. But if we have, say, five threes and five fives, then we know we're dealing. Once we move beyond six, if you will, Mm -hmm. we're dealing with a more. In the total number. In the total number that right? Mm-hmm. Now we're moving to a different risk category. So that's an important point. To, and I think to in make. terms of health literacy, this is, you know, it's, you it's know a this. tough one. Yeah. It's, and it's a, it's a very important one, but it's, um, so, so that like, thank you for explaining that Dr. Ma, because that, that is what really got me getting mm-hmm. stop skating. And I mean, I think that's self-preservation. I'm like, I mean, it, it took some time for the gravity of this to set in and yeah, once I was like, this could get systemic, I was like, oh, we got we to gotta think about this differently. So in terms of treatment options for the audience, there are three things that were laid out for me. And we talked about it before, but one option is to wait and see and then deal with treatment later. The other option that was given to me was radiation. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted radiation because it was non-invasive. So I was like, what if we, what if, and we were having this conversation, I was like, why don't I just do radiation? And they said, well, look, Radiation has other risk factors. So I was told as a young person, radiation could increase my cancer risk for other cancers, such as bladder cancer and other things. Again, if it's someone who's 70, 75, even late 60s maybe, there might be a different calculus. Exactly. But for a 42-year-old radiation, they're like you're increasing your risk of all kinds of other cancers. The other thing I was told is that radiation that while it can kill the cancer cells, it destroys the tissue in the prostate. And so in terms of future options of removing the prostate, it can make that procedure more complicated later because the tissue gets destroyed. Mm -hmm. So please, how does that sound? Is that just my kind of layperson explanation of what I was told? I mean, that was excellent. I mean, I I think, you know, in, you know, there's prostatectomy, uh, i.e. removal of the prostate, especially if we understand that it's localized and that, 
too can reduce the chances of future cancer Right, risk. so that was the third option. Sorry, I didn't say that. No, yeah, no. and then the third option is a radical prostatectomy, which is just removing the whole prostate. Exactly. Correct. So, you know, prostatectomy, be that laparoscopic, be that robotic, right, is just removal of the prostate for the, for the audience. And so, you know, in framing that, I think it's important to decide, like, okay, now I know I have this, how do I decide kind of which one is right for me where am I at in my stage of life? And as a physician, that's how I think about it because we're trying to personalize and individualize care. And obviously someone is making this in conjunction, I should say, with a urologist as well. Right, and Dr. Ma, there's something that became clear to me as I was going down this process, which is that the treatment options, particularly the surgical ones, have a significant recovery time. Mm -hmm. And immediately I realized I'm fortunate enough to have a job situation and a family situation that would allow me to take some time off. Right. But frankly, the other thing I was thinking about is for a lot of people, and particularly black men who are providers who, you know, maybe providers in their family or have an important role to provide for their family, not only is the procedure expensive, but to be able to take a lot of time off may not be feasible. And that may also be a driver that may push people to treatment options that are not optimized in terms of what we know with the best science just because of the practical livelihood issues. I think you're exactly right. And I have seen that play out with other diagnoses in my own personal practice where maybe the the most optimized choice is not chosen because that particular individual may not have the you know bandwidth or the resources to do what's needed, right, in terms of downtime, recovery? Is there someone else in the household who's able to be a breadwinner for that time to keep that household afloat? Right. You know what I mean? Most of Americans, what, I think it's less than $1,000 in savings. So that becomes a key driver for decision-making, especially for communities of color. Right. So I could see in, in, in my situation, I could see another individual who, let's say, was my same age, moderately aggressive prostate cancer, didn't have the resources maybe to consider the procedure because of expense. Mm -hmm. And the conversation might go like this. Hey, doc, look, like, is this cancer something that you think is going to lead to me potentially dying in the next year or two? And the doc says, no, but dot, 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 this is a risk. He'd be like, okay, look, this isn't an issue for me in the next one to three years. Like, I'm not dying in the next one to three years. Not okay. I'll holler at you later. Because, I mean, let's be real, but that's how this stuff, that's how it slips through because I realize my privilege and my position to be able to make this choice. When we look at the numbers and we ask ourselves about this mortality rate that's much higher for mm -hmm. black men, I just want to honor that, that, like, the, the context, systemic racism, like, economic oppression, the challenges that we find black men in in our society, it it's not always that the choice that's going to be best for you is a choice that you're maybe in a position to make. Exactly. And, I, and this is the only this has been going through my mind through my whole journey, making it much more accessible for me to understand that. Because I could even me, I was thinking maybe I should delay for an investment round. That these, these are all privilege type things, right? I'm like, oh, should I like wait and get my investment round done or not? But look, if I'm putting food on the table and you're telling me as a doctor that this isn't necessarily killing me in the next one to three years. And I can't afford the procedure and or I can't afford to take eight weeks off, 12 weeks off, whatever it may be. I'm probably going to kick the can down the road. 
Yeah, and you're exactly right. And this is what we see leads to suboptimal outcomes, right? The inability to make the best choice for yourself because of other factors, not just, again, not just clinical factors. There's so much other, right, decision points that come into play for communities of color, not to mention when we're talking, remember we said the prostate is a reproductive organ, right? right. So now we start talking some other things, right? Fertility. Now we start talking incontinence, right? Inability to control bladder, bl- excuse me, bowel bladder function, right? Right. Or erectile dysfunction. And so when you bake all of those things in there, right? And traditionally, you know, again, these communities don't access care, right? For fear of outcomes or just lack of trust. Lack of trust. Right. Yeah. Then it becomes a very weighted decision with a lot of branch points, right, that can lead you down a completely different outcome. Right, right, right. right. So let's talk about, you know, the treatment options a little bit more in more detail. So so in my case, given my young age, the fact that my Gleason score was such that it was moderately aggressive, we did not know whether or not the, the cancer was systemic, but waiting significantly would increase the risk of systemic cancer. I was advised that a radical prostatectomy, basically removing the whole prostate, mm-hmm. was what what the strong recommendation of my whole care team. And I remember us having this conversation and me asking you some more questions about it because I wanted to vet it. And so then the question became, you know, we've talked about some of the risks around radiation, but to be very open with this audience, you know, um, a radical prostatectomy means that you know, your ability to have children in a traditional way goes away, mm-hmm. right? So for, for a young person, particularly someone that's in their 40s, if they're thinking about growing their family or something of that nature, that is the reality, right? Right. Not to mention, then I had another fear of, well, I was very fortunate to be recommended to very good surgeons, mm. but as a young person, thinking about urinary incontinence and all these other issues that come with this became very scary. I'm like, yo, I'm a young, healthy dude, I'm fit, I'm, I'm at it, and now all of a sudden, you know. And right. again, you could even see that pivoting someone to radiation again, to be exactly. like, you know what? Like, nah, I don't, I'm 42, I'm too young for urinary incontinence. I'm just being real with y'all, like, I, mm-hmm. I, I can't be, no, I can't be, it feels geriatric to me, I'm right. like, no, no. So you know what? Do radiation. So so there are definitely areas that I know we had conversations where I was a little bit like I, I could tell I was trying to kind of pivot myself out of like the radical prostatectomy. <laughs> yeah, you you like were nudging me back and so, like, yo, okay, like mm, go back here. Right. Yeah. And, and part of the reason I you know you know I always I always say I'm a I'm a conduit of information for my 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 patients in my community. And part of the reason we say that is that as a physician, what I think about is what is the worst, most dangerous outcome for KP? And that's a metastatic cancer that we no longer have a, an aggressive metastatic cancer. So the Can you decision, explain what that is, a metastatic, aggressive metastatic cancer? Aggressive being spreads faster, mm-hmm. right? Metastatic meaning that it has left the prostate. It is now, right. it, it went through the lymphatics and the blood. And so, you know, it may have metastasized or spread to bone, common place for it to spread to, mm-hmm. you know, colon, lung, right, other areas, other organ systems. Once that happens, the proverbial and pathologic quote-unquote cat is out of the bag, right? And a poor outcome becomes more likely. Right. So the way that I was framing it, and maybe I never said this directly, was that if you can 
you know, my job as a physician is kind of basically eliminate the worst possibility for you. So if you're young enough, right, and healthy enough and maybe able to tolerate that surgery and we can take that off the table altogether mm-hmm. kind of why you know we have to frame you know we have to have that context around it and why wouldn't we entertain that so right and it's fascinating to me because there's just something else i need to say which is as black men mm-hmm. we don't really talk about this because this is what got really interesting to me once i started sharing with my inner circle both men and women about my prostate cancer diagnosis. <laughs> Literally 100% of them said, oh yeah, my dad had prostate cancer. Oh yeah, my grandfather died of prostate cancer. Oh yeah, like this person had an early diagnosis. Like it's there, it's in our community, but we're not even talking about it. This is fascinating to me. Like my own circle, we're all experiencing it. We're not even like talking about it. And it was very strange to me. I'm still processing that because I'm like, and that's part of why I'm doing this podcast too. It's so interesting to me. There's so much commonality that it makes sense with the statistics. Because if the statistics say prostate cancer is the most common cancer amongst men, and that for black men, we're more prone to have it and have late stage, it makes sense that it's in our community, but we're not talking about it. And so that, to me, I'm just curious for you what your experience has been, because a lot of your patient panel are people of color with that. And, and why? Why is that? You know, I I think, you know, I'm big on education and health literacy, right? Mm-hmm. Because if we clearly put up the statistics, if we clearly put up the data, it shows that we should probably talk about this on a daily on basis. On a daily basis, <laughs> yeah. And, and you need to be asking your people, are you having, when were you screened? Right. So it goes back to not only who you have or what you have access to, but who, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you have access to somebody who has the knowledge and is going to present that in an educational, we're going to learn together manner, right? Then you are more likely to consider and talk about this. But I find it's just honestly a lack of information. And, 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 and maybe that's not for trying. Obviously there are other barriers baked into that. Right. But I, I, I think it's a lack of a realization of how heavy this particular pathology, i.e. disease burden is in our community. And what's interesting is because of some of the very high profile people that represent some of our best black excellence that have died of this mm-hmm. or died of cancer, but but let's say like colon cancer to me actually seems like the one that's gotten more media attention Exactly, because we've had some really bright and gifted folks that have left us too soon. Yep. However, when you look at the data, it's actually prostate cancer that is even more prevalent and there's more death associated with it in our community. Right. You're exactly right. And and so, you know, we want to acknowledge those individuals. Rest in peace, Chadwick Boseman, right? Virgil Abloh. Virgil Abloh. And and there's been several others who have kind of been stricken. And you think about this and you say, okay, they have resources. Theoretically, they have the knowledge to hopefully prevent this, then why is that happening? And that's when you start to dig a little deep in the data. There was the founder of Unseen Capital, which is a fund. Mm. Yeah, he also passed of colon cancer young in his 40s. Right, right. Someone in our community that's very tough loss for for many people. Mm, Right. Colon cancer again. Exactly, exactly. Hence, and the guidelines have changed. So those out there start asking about that at age 40, 45, and not 50. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, there there seems to be a heavy disease burden. And I think it's just not knowing and, and not necessarily being resourced and having access to the resources who 
know the data, know how important it is to someone who looks like you and what actually should be recommended for you over what's recommended for the population, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think those are important points. And there's been a couple of articles that have been written, especially on equity and disparities and health outcomes where we're seeing that even the effects of, I guess, education for black men doesn't necessarily guarantee you this outright good health outcome, right? Mm -hmm. Because there are so many other factors that come of into course. play yeah. for you in making a health decision, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I think those are important points to point out. And so awareness, and that's why we're doing this, right? right. Raising awareness, awareness and being advocates for our community, for our, for you know, men everywhere, but definitely black men who look like us and are walking this every day. Mm -hmm. So, 100%. So, so in terms of treatment, so when I was having the conversation now, so so as the listeners have heard and, and for those of you listening, like it became clear and I shared with you in an open and honest way about my journey of getting to the radical prostectomy. I have two amazing kids. You know, I was told that when I make this choice that there could be some options that would allow me to potentially have kids in the future, but that really I was cutting that off. And my wife and I decided that for us, that was that was okay. Mm -hmm. And the risk reward, I feel blessed. I've got a great family and that I was willing to make that choice. Right. Right. And being open and honest that that was the call. And I know for a lot of people, there's many factors, particularly if you're 42 or 40, that you might need to make a different call. So, but for me, that's the direction I went. So, you know, with the radical prostectomy, now I start thinking, okay, well, well, how does this work? And I was told there are two options, mm -hmm. robotic and then basically an open, what they call an open procedure. They cut you, your abdomen open and they go in. Right. And unanimously, I was told both by my care team and people like Dr. Ahmad, who I consulted, that robotic procedure was the right way. Now, some of my friends, including some of my friends who, for reasons we have a little bit less trust of the healthcare system, were like, of course, KP, you're going to go pick the most cutting edge, like robotic procedure. Like, why not just do the regular stuff? And I want to make it clear, robotic is the best way to go for yeah. this procedure. Yeah. I'm going to have Dr. Ahmad explain why, but I ended up doing a robotic uh, procedure, which is less invasive, quicker recovery, and all of that. And you know, I'd like to share that what I learned is that for any men who are in my situation, I don't care who you are, mm -hmm. you need to ask about that robotic surgery. If it's not being offered to you, you need to ask right. for it or how to get access to it. And so I'd love for Dr. Ahmad to break this down, open versus robotic and why robotic is the way. Yeah. So I'll, I'll start with open. So okay. open, you know, a lot of procedures, surgical procedures that we used to do before we had kind of modern technologies available to us were open, i.e. to your point, go through the abdomen, we open up, we have a full field of view, right? Mm -hmm. And so that is usually offered if we're thinking that maybe this is spread to surrounding tissues, right? Right. But the drawback of that is more blood loss, right? Mm -hmm. Longer recovery time. And then, yeah, the outcome of having the prostate removed is, you know, that's great, but also the outcome on the other side of that, these fertility issues become more likely incontinence, right? Lack of control of bowel bladder function becomes impotence or erectile dysfunction, right? Not to mention when you're in these tight spaces, if you will, you know, it, this doesn't happen often, but there are chances to hit other structures in there, right? right. So that's open, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas robotic, 
right? We're obviously using technology to kind of help us along here. It is a smaller opening in terms of procedure, mm-hmm. less blood loss, quicker recovery times, right? Mm-hmm. And when we look at kind of fertility rates and continence and all those other things, right, the burden is a bit less there. Right. 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 So like, so I mean, what I'm really framing for the audience is to be empowered with the information to ask. Mm-hmm. So I think just to make it clear, each person needs to work with their care team and their clinicians and specialists to find the right plan for them. But I guess what I'm saying, just to be straight up, is if you're not offered robotic, right, you need to ask for it and or ask why you're not being offered it. And that's kind of what I'm trying to get at. But I just want to make just this frame right for our audience. You, you're exactly right. And this brings in another important point that we can support with evidence in that quote, quote unquote activated patients we've seen because you may not be offered that because of how you look, where you're at or what you have access to. Mm. But if you are an activated patient, right, you've you've have knowledge, you've kind of looked these things up. And I think my co-founder, Daffodil Baez, who's also has a public health background frame this right in that you don't it should not always be your job to have to be to have to do this <laughs> to have to do the work that should already be done here right. but you can lead yourself down a path of a better outcome because that's essentially as serving for your personal advocate what what did i tell you it was like i'm going to give you the information right and mm-hmm. so now you have it you can make a more complete decision for yourself so you've you framed that right and we've highlighted the importance of knowledge and just overall health literacy in this scenario. Right. And so even just simply if someone's in a situation where they're a provider for their family and they need to be thinking about the amount of time off from work and quicker recovery, even that alone Mm -hmm. would say like you should be we want you to be armed with that information about robotic. And maybe there are some edge cases where open makes sense. Are, are there edge cases where an open procedure would be chosen or not really in this day and age? I mean, you know what? I don't see it often anymore. Okay. Right. And and we definitely can dig a deeper with our urological colleagues. But right. usually, right, if, if they are suspecting spread to tissues, that's when you would go open. But quite honestly, at the institutions that I've been at, I'm seeing more laparoscopic, same thing, smaller incision at the mm-hmm. belly button. You're using a different tool and obviously robotic prostatectomies, i.e. removal of prostate. Right. So, so, yeah. so to summarize here on treatment, as we're kind of getting information out to the community, you know, one option is there's information that leads someone to say we're going to watch and wait and see. Other information may say, based on risk factors, age, and others, that radiation may make sense. Mm -hmm. Another option is we need to remove the prostate. And so there are basically two options we're talking Mm -hmm. about for removing the prostate, an open procedure or a robotic. And we just want people to know that range of options. And so when you're dealing with your care team, your urologist, whatever, know that range of options and then know that if you're removing the prostate, and no one's mentioned robotic to you, you should be asking about it. And if they're not telling you to do it, you should be asking them why mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> as exactly. a starting place and exactly. just to get you that information. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's perfectly framed. So now you have the information, right? There's mm-hmm. a decision to be made. So I guess tell us, you know, the decision, obviously how it was made and kind of going through that procedure, recovery, where where are we at here? Right. So so where we're at is, you know, as I started to really internalize the gravity of any 
scenario where I was waiting longer than I should and the risk of systemic cancer and I was thinking about my wife and kids. I was mm-hmm. like, I a dose of fear kicks in. And I was like, oh, cancer is unpredictable. Like, yeah. I need to get this done quick. So I kind of, I had a pivot. It went from like some uncertainty or like, should I wait? And then all of a sudden I was like, I need to get this thing out of my body as soon as possible. And I just pivoted. Um, <laughs> so I remember that pivot because uh, I it was one time we had a conversation and I gave you. I was like, "All right." And then the next time I called, we were at this decision point. Yeah, and I was you know quietly elated because it's like, "All right, we're taking that possibility off the table." Off the table, right? Right. right. And so then I looked to schedule as soon as possible to get this procedure done. The urologist, the surgeon, had a very real conversation with me. It was another one of those conversations where he's like, look, I feel the, the surgeon said, I feel a responsibility to tell you that given you're a young age, these procedures aren't always perfect. There's risk in any procedure. Mm-hmm. Mind you, for the audience, I was very fortunate to be referred to some of the leading surgeons doing this work. So like the surgeon that, the surgeon that did my procedure, like him and his partner have done like over a thousand of these, maybe even like 1200 of these procedures. So they've done it so often and they have good results. Like great, actually, excuse me, great results. I shouldn't say good, great results. And so I knew that, so I knew that, but then nonetheless, that gave me comfort. But then again, I went in and I got hit again with the the brick because he was like, yo, this thing isn't perfect. So I have a, I feel an ethical responsibility to tell you that certain things can go wrong urinary incontinence, erectile dysfunction, all this stuff. You're a 42-year-old fit young man with kids, married. I just have to tell you these are the risks. And I was like, it just it just hit me hard, but I do appreciate that they did that, but it did hit me hard because in my mind, I'm like, oh, I've got great surgeons, like very high likelihood of success, but he reemphasized this issue and that was also brought a little bit more fear of that fear important point right and i think that's a very important point is and i do that as a clinician and and if that's not happening that's an issue right you should know what the operation is but you should also know the outcome side effects and the potential pitfalls if you will or things that could happen on the other side of that and that's part of getting that whole arc of care there Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm, I'm glad that he did that. So that's a that's big up to your surgeons for doing that, because I will say this also being a physician who has practiced in traditional healthcare does not always happen. Mm. It's all it's like this is what you're going to do. Like it's a you know, our profession is very patriarchal at times. Right? right. And we you know, I always say we don't take a patriarchal approach in GP health. We're going to partner with you. Right. So that's an important thing is that. Nah, KP, you're going to do this. What are the risks here? Don't worry about that. This is what you're going to do. Happens far too often, right? right? In less progressive environments. So shout out to your surgeons on, on that one. And so now that you have that information, decision is inching closer, right? And you make that decision. What are you doing to, because this is also important to me kind of as a physician and I'll, and I, and I'll make this point. What's, what are you doing to get ready and to prep yourself? Not only physically but psychologically mentally right because the first thing one of the first things that i do when i have someone who's been diagnosed with cancer i link them with a mental health 
counselor mm-hmm. or partner because I understand that there's a brevity to this. Right. So kind of walk us through. Oh, that's a really important part. Thanks for bringing that up. Mm-hmm. So my primary care physician, the one that got me screened, we talked about earlier in this conversation, he connected me with a cancer buddy. So he connected me with a patient who was also young, but a little bit older than me. So young, but in his version, like early 50s. Mm-hmm who very act physically active business owner who had just gone through the procedure. And he said, hey, this person I think you would really get along with and has just been through this journey and can be someone that you can talk to. And I think that he'd be willing to talk to you. Are you, you want me to reach out? I was like, definitely. So he reached out and this person was willing to talk to me. This person, and I, I, I won't name them in this episode, but they were tremendous to me and still have been checking in. I was able to ask all those questions that, you know, sometimes you wouldn't necessarily just ask the clinician and some of the practical things. So, you know, I was really curious about things like recovery because given my personality type, you tell me, you know me already, you tell me recovery is eight weeks, I'd be like, what, nah, is this like three or four weeks? Or like, is this really, what is this, two weeks? You know, I was like, so, so this is how I'm built, right? So like I needed like more grounding and reality checks. Like, like, am I actually gonna be out out or am I gonna still be doing emails? And so this cancer buddy started talking me through everything. And we talked every week. He even came to the house and brought me things that I needed and we met for dinner. And this person, really armed me with information that took a whole nother layer of anxiety out of the process for not just me, but for my family, for my wife, who's also thinking about, you know, carrying this load and we've got kids and thinking about how the family's gonna help me in my care process. Cause this was very humbling when we talked about the treatment, like I was knocked out for a little second. Mm-hmm. So I needed help. Like I, I was, I was knocked out. And so, you know, having that resource of the cancer buddy not just drop the anxiety for me and help me prepare, but also with my family, what the expectations were. And I really, really appreciate this person who I'll share this episode with. Uh, He knows who he is, but a huge, huge help. And I appreciate my physician for giving me that option and connecting me with that person. Gotcha. So that's an important point, you know, the advocacy layered into the decision making that, again, is always not layered in to a decision with the weight and brevity of this. And I think I remember you know, my brother, Kwame Garrett Price, who's now on the board of his, he had a journey with cancer. And I remember this being an important part of his journey, right? And we talked about activating and knowledge and being able to bring that into decision making. So important point. I'm glad that you were able to express yeah, that for to asking the audience. That. Yeah. yeah. So you've got your advocate, right? We've got the surgical team. We've got your primary care physician. Everybody's working in tandem. Now we're leading up to decisions been made, we're gonna go into surgery, right? You have things to bounce folks off of. So how are you now kind of preparing for that? And I guess we can also kind of jump into the procedure, what that was like, recovery, et cetera. So kind of walk us through the lead up, if you will. Mm-hmm. So now like my with my, my cancer buddy, I got the reality checks. Like, mm-hmm. okay, you're gonna be out. You're gonna be out for a little bit. And you gotta start by being like two weeks of just completely out, which for me, as people that know me, is completely foreign construct. Like, it hasn't even happened, right? This whole process is humbling, right? Mm-hmm. About the fragility of, of, of you know, of, of human beings and, and, you know, the short time we have on this planet. So 
that kind of got very real for me. Like, oh, okay, I'm going to be out. And I start thinking about all the different practical things. So people are listening out there. They know me or they're in these places. Like I'm an entrepreneur. I'm in the middle of an investment round fighting for the life of the company. I've got my family, you know, my wife and kids. You know, I'm trying to – I wasn't feeling nervous. I had these moments of different places of fear that I've talked about. But I wasn't feeling nervous necessarily about the outcome. I felt like we were going to beat it. Mm-hmm. But I also understood like the pressure is putting on my wife and the kids like, oh, their dad has cancer. That's like heavy. Right. Um, And everything was quiet. Everything was confidential. No one knew. I talked to my board. So for people out there that have companies, what the people are thinking, well, what did what did you do? Who'd you tell? Well, I had to tell my board. They were very, very, very supportive. And this was my personal health information. But, you know, being in the middle of an investment round, all that had to be managed because the bottom mm-hmm. line is we know. Being, you know, a person of color and raising money is one thing. Then you're a person of color with cancer. It's like I might as well just kill my whole investment round with that information, right? Mm -hmm. These are the realities. I'm just being open with everyone. We had these conversations, right? Right. We had these conversations. And so there is a lot of cognitive load of all those different components. But like what I can tell listeners I had to do is I had to prioritize myself and my health. And this was a conversation Dr. Ma and I kept having. I kept thinking about every other thing. Got to do this. Got to deal with this investor. Got to deal with this other report and this proposal and this thing. And at the end of the day, what, what really was happening is I was getting in the way of prioritizing my own wellness and myself. So I think probably about two weeks before the procedure, and I know we were talking. So there's a moment. I can't know if I can pin the time, but there's a point where I started to realize like, oh, I need to get serious about this. This is like my, my health and life. This is like my family, my ability to be there for my kids. Forget everything else, <laughs> you know? But it took me a minute to get there. I'm just being honest there. It took me a minute to get there. Because mm-hmm. I think for people on the outside looking in or listening, it's like that's probably obvious to you. But it took me months to get to maybe two weeks before the procedure. I was like, oh, I really need to focus on myself, my recovery, you know, all the things that are going to get me back to where I need to be and there for my family. But it was it was hard for me to get there. And and so you don't feel alone in that decision. I will say also as a physician, having delivered, you know, obviously serious diagnoses uh, throughout my career, that appears to be kind of we'll normalize that. Right. In, in that, you know, most folks will struggle to make the ultimate decision not understanding how important the actual health aspect is because if you don't have the health then nothing else matters right nothing else goes yeah right so that's an important framework and i try to be advocates for my patients and get them right or present it and frame it properly to say like hey this is very important so i'm glad that you brought that up and to completely normalize that that is something that i see happen in my own personal kind of clinical experience so not a foreign concept at all. Yeah, and I know you must have seen it happen, though. And all my friends are like, KP, stop, slow down, stop doing this and that. Like, dude, focus on your health, spend time with your family. So I got there, and it's probably about two weeks before the procedure I got there. And I started to be like, this is all that matters now. My Me getting rid of this cancer, you know, my board and, like, lead investors and people that knew were doing all things. Like, KP, stop. Do what you got to do to get better. Like, stop, mm-hmm. stop, stop, stop. So I finally got there. The procedure went well. I stayed one night in the hospital. It was a serious procedure in the sense that 
I have not been knocked out like that before. And there's something else I want to say, which is that just even thinking about the pandemic and the work that, you know, my colleagues and I and other folks out there are doing on health equity, they're listening to this, like being in the hospital, the majority of people that were supporting me, helping me, serving me were people of color and specifically mm. black people. Mm. And now I find myself or found myself in a situation where for probably, well, first time in my life, like I, I literally had to rely on other people to do other things. I couldn't move well. I was in a lot of pain for a little while and like, but there was something there that was very, very, very comforting. I got the best care and kind of like the eye wink, like that kinship of people of color. And it made me just think about the pandemic and what's been going on and it's, it took it a little bit out of abstraction for me, right? Because I do this work, I talk about these themes, but to be sitting in the hospital and to have these brothers and sisters taking care of me, serving me, helping me was very powerful. And just shout out to our frontline health workers because yep. I got upfront and personal with that. And as much as I'm an advocate for these issues and it's deeply personal to me, it took that whole thing out of abstraction of our people really being the frontline workers through the pandemic, through mm -hmm. all these issues, and just a ton of gratitude to those healthcare workers for helping me through when I was in the hospital. You know what, so in that point, it's out an important point that representation matters. And, and we've said that, and I know you, your guests, you know, big advocates for equity. And so, you know, and we've got data that actually supports that, that communication is better outcomes or the perception of outcome is better right the experience right there was a there's we've got medical literature that tells us that there's somewhat of a racial concordance if you will with some of your experience. I felt like they were looking out for me I exactly. felt like they were there I felt comfortable I didn't feel yeah it makes a huge difference so how important would you say that was how important do you feel that was for your recovery journey to start it in that manner well, I think it was because what's funny is the clinicians that came in and checked in on me, like were basically like white men, and it was very algorithmic. It's like, hey, how are you feeling? It's like it's like they're going through their clinical decision support thing, like the checklist, this, that, that. It was like thirty seconds, and they walked out. It didn't necessarily give me comfort or context for what I should be feeling or how I should be feeling. But in terms of like the care, like, like in all the things, because, you know, I haven't mentioned this, but I had, um, I had a catheter, right? So like that's part of what happens in this part of the process. And for those of you that don't know, it's basically a bag that's connected to your um, urethra. urethra. And so your urine naturally flows out from your bladder into this bag that's outside of your body and you have to empty it. It's very uncomfortable. It's, it's one of the things that happens in recovery for this. And so just all those little things of finding comfort and dealing with all that stuff and it's, it's humbling, you know, like my interactions with the people of color staff felt more comforting and I felt like without saying a word, they were looking out mm -hmm. and that if something was wrong, they were going to be on it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just it's just a feeling. That's just how it felt. That's why I had to bring it up. And I'm glad that you brought that up because I'm a big believer, even as a physician, as the mind goes, the body goes. And if you're in a supported environment, the recovery goes a bit, bit well, right? And it's a bit smoother. So kind of 
give us kind of the layout of your recovery, how that's right. been going and kind of walk us through that. And there's some points that I want to make here and you to circle back to what you said earlier is like, hey, I exercise, I eat well, right. I get proper rest. And so we need to connect how important that is right. to recovery. So, so very good. So just to kind of back up, like my whole mindset around this was I was going to beat the cancer and that part of that process was to be as healthy mind, body, and spirit as possible going into the procedure. So when I got the diagnosis, like I actually was exercising pretty regularly. I reduced my consumption of alcohol. I basically wanted to go into the procedure like fortified. It's just my mindset. Everyone's different, but that's, so I was quite fit. Mm -hmm. I was riding my bike long distances. I was doing all the things like to be fit going Mm -hmm. in. And that was, but then also you realize with the body, there's like a stress level thing. So I had to start to recalibrate my view around the investment round and all the things I was doing. Cause like we say, no health, no wealth, right? And we were talking about that all the time. Like, and my board would bring that up too. So I was like, okay, I got to focus on my wellness. So I had to, I had to figure out how to get my mind right. I'll just say it for each person, there's different things, but I had to figure out how to get my mind right, how to detune stress, how to reprioritize And I would say like, I'm very aware of like my privilege and the fact that I have a job, like I have a house over my head. I've got, you know, a wife and kids and strong family unit and thing, all those things. But like you talked about earlier that wrap around me. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about me, but help fortify me going into this process, like with my family and friends and even talking to my whole support system. So there's a lot of effort put into that up front that I didn't talk about. And, uh, so I went in very fit and on the back end, <laughs> you know, uh, I got moving pretty quick. Like they said, like, the more you move, the better. But you <laughs> anyway, Dr. Voss laughing because he know, <laughs> like, I got moving real quick. I was like, I can't sit inside this house. So I put on some long pants and put the catheter bag inside the pants and go walk around the block. And I was, but, but, you know, I tried to calibrate it all with how my body felt, but we kind of slowly got moving. And I still believe that's part of wellness too. Like I, I wasn't going to be holed up sitting in a bed all day. Like I needed to move. I needed sunlight. I needed, it's a little woo woo, but I felt like I needed all that to recover too. And to the audience out there, do not underestimate that. I almost, you know, I always explain it to my patients. Like, it's almost like running a, a race and you were former runner. Like, you don't show up to the race having not trained for it. So doing different things through your lifestyle, doing different things, you know, mentally, physically, spiritually, having that support system in place. And I actually, again, when I was telling you, like when I deliver a diagnosis like that, that is immediately what I start trying to organize in the background for those particular patients. And I remember even on my own personal journey in my family with my father, but most recently with my brother, who was diagnosed with a pretty rare cancer. And we beat that. Shout out to him. He's now on the board. You know, Kwame, Garrett Price, love you out there. But one of the things that his surgical team has made note of time and time and time again was that if you were not doing these things, we would not have this outcome. You would not right. be recovering as well as you are. And I remember talking to you and you were you were out there walking and I was like, he's like my brother. It's like, it's like, <laughs> can't sit him down. But but it's important to for the audience to understand how important that is, not only for your 
physiology, your physical health, but also for your mental health and going through something like this, because this is something that can be devastating for a lot of people and less so physically, more so psychologically. Psychologically. Right. So yeah. so I'm glad that you made that point and that was important. And so kind of now that you're at this point, we're recovering, right? Tell us about what happens on the other side of this um, in terms right. of surveillance, right? That's a mm -hmm. key word here, right? Because it's not over exactly. <laughs> after the surgery. Exactly, and that was the other part that became clear to me. So, so you know, so I had an appointment, which was my eight-week appointment, so eight weeks after the procedure to check in. And really happy to share with everyone, like I, my recovery has been really strong. And what they do is they actually now monitor my PSA on a quarterly basis, because mm. that's part of how they keep track of, did we get rid of everything? So after my procedure, because when they go in to do the procedure, they can look around. Mm -hmm. So they can do a visual check as well when they want to see like, has the cancer possibly spread outside of the prostate? So they, not only they, what they did is when they remove my prostate, they actually run tests on it afterwards, mm -hmm. right? So they then do a whole, series of tests on the prostate to really understand the cancer more deeply. And when they're in there, they look around. They look at the lymph nodes, seminal vesicles for any visual cues of where the cancer might have gone. So after the procedure, I got some good news that from how it looked, it looked like the cancer had not spread outside of the prostate. Awesome. But then we had to do the biopsies or they had to do the, the tests on the prostate once it was removed. That came out looking good as well. There's nothing else that gave concern there. And then I had an eight week where they took my PSA and they're like, if this procedure went the way it should, that should be like, your PSA should be like gone. Mm. Like it shouldn't be there. And so my PSA is like, it's gone now. So that's the way they're able to tell me I'm actually officially cancer free. And now we just monitor mm -hmm. um, going forward for some period of time. And, and what are your, how long will this, continue to go in terms of monitoring your PSA? Have they given you an idea of how long you? They've talked about a couple of years, like they don't want to play around with this. So like KP, you're going to be coming and seeing us every three months. It'll be quick, but we're going to run the blood. We're going to look at the PSA and we're just going to keep monitoring until maybe there's some indicator that we feel like we can stretch out the time. So this will be a lifetime monitoring thing. Yep. But it, as I understand it, it'll move from, we're looking at my PSA every three months to we're comfortable to look at it every six months, and then we're comfortable to look at it once a year, maybe. But that's how it's been explained to me. And, and, and to the audience, that is exactly how we do this clinical surveillance, right? The closer you are to the operation, right, you'll have smaller surveillance windows. So three months, i.e. six months. And then we see that consistently. Your PSA in this case is negligible. All right, we feel comfortable to go to six months, and then we feel comfortable to go to 12 months. and I'll make another important point here is that sometimes, especially in communities of color, those can get lost to follow up. Right. And exactly. you can see there's a danger in here is like of kind of letting your guard down and not being proactive in this approach even after the fact. So I wanted to highlight how important that is. So you'll have consistent right. follow ups. Right. Yeah. So I have consistent follow ups. Yeah. And so and I'm, I'm so pleased. Um, you know, and even again, through recovery, I've still been in touch with my cancer buddy because, you know, I, you know, you're kind of trying to understand, am I recovering well or not so well compared to other people? And just having a benchmark and asking about mm -hmm. different things, we've still stayed in touch. 
and he'll regularly just check in and, and pop me a text like, hey, how are you doing? Yeah. And, you know, and then by the way, he also had a cancer buddy when he had his procedure. Mm. So he felt like he was paying it forward to me, too, because it was so helpful to him. So we're still in touch. But, you know, I'm happy to say, as I've told people, I say it several times, I'm cancer free. We've gone through this. The purpose of this conversation is I feel deeply passionate about getting the word out. Hopefully this is the first of a few conversations. And I realize that I want to use this platform, frankly, to get the word out and to have people get more screening. So I'll tell you, like a lot of my friends who that know me, I was, as you mentioned, I was a D1 track athlete. I still am physically active. I think it was a shock to a lot of my social network to be like, oh, KP, like, how's he getting this? Like, because... You know, they associate it with maybe like lack of physical activity or other things, but we don't know. Like there are all kinds of risk factors. And I'm happy to say I've had several, several, several of my friends, not just black men, but men of all kinds Mm -hmm. going and getting their checkups and then texting me and be like, yo, okay, I got my checkup. Here's how it looked. You know what I mean? And so to me, that's that's what motivates me so getting the word out and i'm really proud that my friends are 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 doing that work for for themselves and for their families and the people that love them and now i just hope that we keep getting the word out and that you know those of you out there listening stay on top of your fam about this right right and i i can't stress enough of how important it is and this is just a almost a a case study and then we don't want to minimize what it was to you, your family and your, your, your social network, but the importance of being proactive and taking a preventative approach to health because I've seen this happen. Imagine if we had just kind of waited just a couple of months, right? right. And connecting the fact that there will be, <laughs> people may not want to be hear this, but it will be no generational wealth if there's no generational health. Exactly. If we cannot be healthy as a population, but also as you know, race, black folks, black men, African-American males, then it will be hard to move the needle in any other area. So mm-hmm. health is everything. We should prioritize it. We should be proactive in our approach and really not wait for these things to happen to us. And we all understand that there are social constructs around that. But we, too, can kind of take that ball and carry that baton forward for ourselves as well and be advocates for ourselves. hundred percent. And I mean, I want to emphasize that, you know, while my scenario was one related to prostate cancer, um, and as we mentioned, we've heard a lot more about colon cancer, these issues generally are affecting our community. So whether it's breast cancer for our woman, mm-hmm. whether it's colon, prostate um, whatever it may be, cardiovascular disease, as you talked about. Yep. Um, this is just something where we, I feel, as a community, in certain ways, like it's why I do the work. We need to just be proactive because in a lot of ways, the system, we're slipping through the cracks. Exactly. And as I mentioned in the beginning, what made this very powerful to me is I've trained in public health. I do this for a living, and I almost fell through the cracks. And all I could think is, so many others are falling through the cracks and it makes me feel deep sense of responsibility that we need to be proactive and frankly for listeners this is just the beginning of a process so we're not done right we're just beginning a process we need to focus on policy change around the screening guidelines we need to focus on while the screening guidelines aren't straight getting this information into our community 
and helping empower our folks to go and ask for this. Yes. And if they're not getting it, yes. really force the system to give them these yes. tools because <laughs> until that, like people are frankly dying unnecessarily. This isn't, this is life or death right now. This isn't, those are the stakes. Be very clear. And it's unnecessary. And that is, that is why I felt the urge to, to share my personal story as the season finale and Dr. Ahmad Garrett Price, I am so, so, so honored to have you as a friend, to have you on this journey with me, to be here sharing, helping me share my story and to put context around it because I want to make sure we get the right information and good information out there. Mm-hmm. So many blessings to you and thank you for, for doing this with me. Oh, man, I appreciate it. I'm happy to be on the journey with you. I'm glad of the outcome. So thank and, you and for that. Thank you so much. And to my listeners, let's get the word out. Thank you for joining us for the In On Health podcast. For more information on this guest and other episodes, please go to www.inonhealth.com podcast. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at In On Health. Until next time, this is your host KP signing off.